You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Robert Carrillo here. I want to welcome you to the Metro Vision Studios, the, the Metro region of the Los Angeles International Church of Christ. Great to have you here with us. Great to have our family here in Metro all together. And if you're visiting from anywhere or ch- chiming in from anywhere, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Special greetings to our San Francisco brothers and sisters. It's great to be all together. Um, today, we're starting a new series focused on stories by Jesus. Everybody loves a good story. And Jesus was a masterful storyteller. And his stories obviously always had a meaning. They were called uh, parables, which a parable is a story that has a spiritual or moral lesson embedded in it. And and it's a great way to learn. I mean, with great stories, Jesus was always so good at telling stories, and he would always use things that everybody related to. Not so much today. We don't relate as much because we're not farmers. We don't know about seeds and cattle and plants and stuff. But it's a general topic that are they use Jesus used general themes that we get the idea right. And um, one one uh, definition I heard a long time ago about what is a parable. A parable is a story that you find out at the end that you're the main character. And I love that because uh, Jesus told a lot of stories that are just like that. You you listen, you think it's a wonderful story, and then at the end you realize, oh my gosh, that's me in that story. And that's really what's supposed to happen. He taught he taught this way. This is a method of teaching that's really fantastic for learning and remembering what Jesus taught. So... The title of the series is Stories by Jesus, and this one in particular is a classic story that uh, we're going to share, a classic parable, and it's found in Luke 18. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn there, um, or turn it on there, and um, we're going to read this, the parable, and then we'll go back and kind of break it down piece by piece, okay? So most commonly known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some really good stuff to learn here, right? Parable of the Pharisee. And the tax collector. We're going to read in Luke 18, chapter 18, verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And we keep reading verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this is probably one of the shortest parables. Very, very short, but very, very powerful. And one that I think we all should be able to relate to. We we should all be able to understand this. And it's got a powerful lesson for all of us, of course, about humility. So we're going to go back, read it, and walk through it and see what we get out of it, right? First First beginning of the story. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That rarely do we ever get an introduction like this to one of Jesus' parables where it's telling us exactly who he's talking to. 
He's, he, there's no beating around the bush here. We know exactly who he's, who's aiming this at and who he wants to learn. And, of course, it says, you know, it says to those who are confident in their own righteousness. Okay, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be confident in your own righteousness? Well, it means that you think that you do everything right, basically, and and you don't need help from others. Uh, you do not see a need for Jesus. You do not see a need for help. You don't see a need necessarily for discipling. If you don't know what discipling is, it's basically how Jesus set up things that everybody would mentor somebody else. And and every so everybody who's a disciple of Jesus, a follower, should have somebody they're mentoring and be mentored by somebody. But, you know, I mean, that's that's help, basically. That's guidance along life. And when we're confident in our own righteousness, we don't necessarily see the need for that. The, the need for discipling or the need for spiritual guidance. We think, hey, I can figure it out. I got it down. And and so Jesus, with this story, he's challenging that, right? He's speaking right to people confident in their own righteousness. And how do you know? Well, how do you know if somebody's being confident in their own righteousness? The classic saying is, I'm good. I'm good. You offer somebody house, somebody help, and they say, oh, you know, I'm good. I'm good. You invite somebody to church, they say, I'm, I'm good. You invite somebody to, to a Bible talk or a Bible study, I'm good. You invite somebody to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about life. Oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm all set. That that feeling, and you know exactly that feeling, when that feeling of, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Don't need anything. That's exactly what Jesus is warning us about. That's exactly what he's trying to show us. Uh, and that's who this parable was aimed at, which really the truth is, if we're just really being honest, it can be any of us, right? It doesn't have to be a Pharisee. It doesn't have to be some classical bad guy person. It can be the average person. We Most of my life, I did not realize how much I needed God. I didn't realize how much I needed the Bible. I mean, all the religion stuff when I was young growing up, it, yeah, it was, it was good stuff. I'm sure I knew it was helpful, but I didn't feel like I need it. I didn't feel like I need to read my Bible. I need to pray every day. I need Jesus guiding me along. In fact, I was pretty self-sufficient, a.k.a. confident in my own righteousness. And it really wasn't um, until I studied the Bible and I began to see how awesome God is, how great he is. And I began to realize there's a whole lot more out there that I could be taking advantage of in a good way, you know, learning from, growing in, and, and being taught so that I could have a great life. And in reality, I do need Jesus. I do need the Bible. I do need brothers and sisters to help me along the way. That's that's the way God designed everything. He gave us all a need. He gave us all something that, that we could feel inside knowing, that, okay, I got to get help. I need guidance. I need direction. I need I need people. We, 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 none of us can do this thing called life by ourselves. None of us can live by ourselves. We all need help and guidance along. But we have to know that in our heart. We have to know that in our heart. Otherwise, we just go through life like a lot of people. I'm good. I'm good. Don't need it. Don't need your help. Don't need anybody's help. In fact, it's kind of weird because sometimes we don't even want anybody's help. We just, we like, it's like a pride, becomes a pride issue. Like we, we don't want to ask for help. We don't want people to know that we need help. We don't want to, you know, it's incredible. I'm, uh, it's it's very humbling when we have to face the fact that we need help. I'm actually preaching to you this sermon sitting down because I threw out my back earlier this week. 
And today's the first day I could actually even walk. Um, and and I keep having to ask for help all the time. And it's humbling. I don't like to have to ask for help. You know, just anything. Somebody get me a glass of water. Can somebody help me walk to the bathroom? Can somebody help me get up from the couch? Or, you know, just because my back's been all messed up. And it's it's a challenge to ask for help. Now, that's a stupid little thing. But the big things in life, we're like that. It's easy for us to just think, no, I'm good. I'm good. And that's a dangerous thing because, no, we're not good. No, we actually need help. We actually need Jesus' help. And we also need each other. That is how God designed us and wired us. So anyways, we'll keep reading in the parable. So the, so this is who he's talking to, right? And and it's not good to be in a place where you don't need Jesus or you don't need church or you don't need your Bible talk to help you out. When, when we're that independent, there's something we're not understanding. There's something we're missing. And that's why Jesus told these parables. So then he tells the story. He gets into the story. So now we've covered who's he talking to. He's talking to us. He's talking to you and me. But now he's going to go into the detail of the actual story. So he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, so we got two main characters here. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, um, what is that? Well, we we kind of, those of us who go to church a lot and been to church a lot, we, we know the Pharisee. He's like the bad guy of the story always. They're the ones that were critical and negative with Jesus, judging him. Uh, they're the ones that condemned him to die and got the Romans to crucify him. Um, basically, that you know, these religious leaders were the ones that opposed Jesus. But, but I want to stop for a second and look at what is a Pharisee? What does that mean to be a Pharisee? Well, I, I put a definition on here. If you can see on there, it says the Pharisees were a social movement and a school of thought in the Levant during the time of Second Temple Judaism. After the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, uh, Christian era, Pharisaic beliefs became the foundational, liturgical, and ritualistic basis for rabbinic Judaism. What does all that mean? Well, what it means is during the time when, when Israel was invaded, it was kind of the intertestamental period, the Second Temple period, um, the Jews would tried to basically make, excuse me, not the Jews, the Greeks, try to make the whole world Greek. That was part of their conquering plan. You remember the you've all heard of Alexander the Great. He 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 basically conquered the known world uh, at that time, and part of his plan was to teach everybody Greek, get everybody to speak Greek, get everybody accept Greek culture and everything. And it did have a huge influence. I mean, that's why our New Testament Bible is written in Greek, even though people probably spoke Aramaic at the time, but it was written in Greek because that was the lingua franca or the language everybody spoke. So they all had to learn Greek. So the world became very Greek, not just in Greece, but all over the world. And and even many Jews were changing their hairstyles, changing their clothing, wearing the toga, you know, the Greek clothing, and even giving their kids Greek names, you know, like one of the one of the powerful Jewish preachers who preached Jesus was named Apollos. Apollos, yeah, Apollos uh, is named after Greek God, which shows you how the word is Hellenized, how Greek the world had become. But there was a group of, of Jews who refused to be influenced by the world, who refused to, to let the world corrupt their religion or their own culture. And they fought it off and they started what was called the Pharisee movement. Um, it had other names, but I won't go into all that. But but 
The Pharisees basically were the ones that were obedient, the ones that were faithful to God. They were not going to become like the Jews. They weren't going to follow the ways of the world. So their intent was great. Their intent was right. They were trying to do the right thing. But they took it too far. You know, there's an obscure passage in in the Old Testament that says, do not be overly righteous. You can go too far sometimes. And how does a person do that? Well, when a person doesn't pay attention to the heart of God, when a person doesn't see why God does things, when a person just woodenly applies God's word, they can go too far. And the Pharisees, they were so concerned that nobody be sinning, nobody be violating God's word, they created a whole bunch of laws around God's word. It's called putting a fence around the, around the word of God so that, you know, the, the, where, for example, where God says do not work, they said, uh, you cannot even pick up a plow. You cannot pick wheat because they defined that as work. So they would make these rules that everybody had to follow just to make sure that they didn't violate any of God's law. And those rules, even, even those rules were ended up being called God's law. And so it just, so they had hundreds of rules, hundreds of rules that were not even God's law, but things that they added. And that's what today we call legalism, when you make up these rules to make sure nobody falls into sin. And so they were doing this, but it wasn't out of necessarily a bad heart. It was actually out of a good intention to make sure people followed the Bible. And like can often happen in religion, they became very powerful, very influential, and they became the guardians of the rules, right? They were so caught up in the rules, not understanding God's heart, missing why God said what he said and why the rules were in place. If you don't know the why behind a rule, you're very likely to get it wrong, to apply it incorrectly. A person has to understand God's love to be able to understand how to apply God's law. They go hand in hand. So so in this story, you've got the Pharisee and you got the tax collector. Now, I think most of us probably know about a tax collector, right? Uh, tax collectors are also still around, you know, collecting taxes. Usually not the person we send a Christmas card to. Usually not the person we're grateful for on Thanksgiving, right? The, um, they collect taxes for the government. And of course, it was even worse in Israel because these were tax collectors. They were Jews who worked for the Romans, collecting taxes from their own people. So it was especially, it was especially bad that they were working for the enemy, collecting taxes from their own people. They were the social outcasts. They were probably in many ways hated even more than the Romans were because these are Jews. These are our own people hurting us, right? So two men went up to pray, temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And I pulled up a definition. Tax collectors, also known as publicans, are mentioned many times in the Bible, mainly in the New Testament. They were reviled by the Jews or of Jesus' day because of their perceived greed and collaboration with the Roman occupiers. So basically what they were able to do, the Romans would say, okay, you've got to collect 10% from everybody in this village, 10% of everything they own. And whatever you collect above that, you get to keep for yourself. So what would they do? Well, they'd go and charge 20% or 30%. And, and they would, and they had the Roman soldiers behind them. So there was nothing you could do. I mean, imagine that if the IRS could come knocking on your door and just say, this is how much we want from you. There's not a system. There's not something you can count on. 
It's, it's totally up to them. And there is nothing you can do about it. You just have to give it to them. And it, I mean, it, at different times in history, that's gotten so bad where people literally had to sell their homes and land just to be able to pay the taxes and they would lose everything. So you can imagine how hated publicans or tax collectors were in this time. They were, they were extremely hated. So you got these two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And now let's see what happens with them. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Okay, how's that hit you? I think we all know that's not the right way to be, right? That's the wrong kind of prayer. But why is it wrong? What is what is so wrong with this prayer? Well, for starters, it's a completely self-centered prayer. He's not praying for people. He's not praying for those lost or lost in sin or trapped in sin or those hurting. It's a completely self-centered prayer. The other thing is it's completely self-righteous. It's all the good he does, and he lists it out for God. You know, like he wants God to, he's like, he's literally trying to impress God with all the good that he does and all the good things that he's accomplished, you know, and then, and, and, and then it's obviously it's self-glorifying. Who's he holding up here? Is he praising God? How great God is? How wonderful God is? No, it's, he's praising himself. He's holding himself up for being such a good guy, but completely self-centered. And here's the thing, here's the thing you got to watch out. Those kind of prayers are easier than we think. That kind of talk is easier than we think sometimes. This can easily be us. This can easily be me. This can easily be you. We get so caught up in our life and our things. And then there's always this trap that he clearly fell into. And the trap is comparing myself to others. It's really easy. It's easy to compare yourself to somebody who has more things and then you feel bad about yourself. It's easy to compare all your strength to somebody else's weakness. Let's say you're real punctual. You're always on time. You're really good about time management. But this sister, this brother is not that good. At it. They're always running late. And what happens? We look down on them. And, we, and in our minds, we usually know better than to say this because we've read this parable before. We don't say, thank God I'm not like her or I'm not like him. We don't say that. But we act like that. We think... Why isn't everybody like me? Why can't they be on time? Or I'm the one that always reaches out to love others and and build friendships. When are they going to reach out to me? When are they going to recognize my greatness, my goodness? I know we don't ever say that, but that's what's happening in this heart is comparing strengths to weakness, you know, and that's just never good. The truth is comparing is no good. Some of us are guilt ridden and we compare our weakness to other people's strengths and we feel like a bunch of losers. You know, the truth is we just shouldn't be comparing at all. God gives everybody some strengths and everybody some weaknesses. And in our weaknesses is where we got to learn to get help from God, to be dependent on God, to bring it to God. And in our strengths is where we can serve and love others, not compare ourselves to others and definitely not compare our strengths to somebody else's weaknesses. That's not going to be any good at all. So we keep reading about the tax collector. Now we read the tax collector. And the tax collector, you know, probably right, 
as soon as Jesus said the tax collector or the publican, however that you say that in Aramaic, probably everybody went, ooh, maybe they even hissed. You know, they knew right away that this is the bad guy because tax collectors are bad guys, right? So he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, that's an amazing prayer. You say, well, why is that so amazing? Because he's so incredibly honest. And you see it come out in everything he does. From the fact that he stands at a distance, that he won't even look up, because he's clearly he's ashamed of who and what he is. And he beats his breast, which is a sign of humility, a sign of oftentimes agony. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's not asking for God to reward him. He's not asking for for God to give him things that the Pharisee has. He's not asking for anything but mercy. Because he knows the truth about his life. And that's probably one of the biggest differences, right? When we see that he would not even look up, that he beat his breast, and he asked, for mercy. You know, what we ask for reveals a lot about us, reveals a lot about our hearts, whether we're materialistic or we're grateful, whether we're negative and critical or we appreciate others and respect everybody. It says a lot about us, what we ask God for. Even and sometimes if all we do is ask God for things and we don't praise him and we don't lift up his name, and we're not, and it's probably one of the most important keys in this, in this little parable is the level of honesty. He said, look, I'm a sinner. I know it, right? He's acknowledging, and it's not like, you know, in the old, and uh, you know, in today, if you say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, no big deal. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody knows that. But let me tell you something. Back then, that was a big deal. That meant people would not eat with you. They would not invite you to any social gatherings, birthday parties, anniversaries, weddings. Nope, you wouldn't get invited to any of those things. You'd be in your house hearing everybody having a party in the village, and you would not be invited. You would not be wanted, and nobody would step foot in your house because you were a sinner. So for him to say that and openly admit that, that's a huge deal. That is what I would call radical honesty. I mean, being that real. Now, does that mean that, that, that God wants us to feel lousy about ourselves and to walk around feeling horrible about ourselves? No, no, not at all. It just shows the importance of being honest, of dealing with the truth. It shows the importance of confessing sin, of being upfront about sin, recognizing it when we blow it. You know, self-awareness is another way of saying being truthful, being honest. You know your sin, you know when you mess up, and you're just honest about it. And again, it's not that God wants us walking around in sackcloth and ashes, beating up ourselves as guilt-ridden. No, he just wants us to live according to the truth. And the truth is, we do some good things, we're wired in, in God's image, we are made in God's image, to do good, to be good. Remember we studied that out? 
But also the truth is that we're, we are sinners. We do mess up. We struggle with things like materialism and pride and arrogance and selfishness and competitiveness and envy. All those things really happen to us. But how honest are we with that? How honest are we? You know, I grew up with an alcoholic uh, father, and he would get really mad sometimes. And there were times he hit me and sent me flying across the room. And in my head, I thought getting angry was a bad thing, and only bad people do that. And later on in life, even as a married couple, I never wanted to say I was angry. And even when Michelle would ask me, are you angry at me? Oh, no, no. Because in my mind, anger was evil. And it's not. There's a time and a place to be angry. There's there's a time and a place for every emotion we have. But the problem with that was that I wasn't being honest with myself. I had to deal with my own anger. I had to get really open and honest and say, okay, why am I angry and what am I angry about? And what does that say about me? And that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have to face that. But I make myself, I, this is where I hold myself to the fire, that I'm going to be honest. And I'm going to say what's really going on inside me. And you know what it does? It humbles me. <laughs> it's incredibly humbling. There's a huge difference between how the Pharisee saw himself and how the tax collector saw himself. We compare their prayers. The Pharisee boasts. He's proud. He compares himself to the tax collector. His strengths, he lists them off. He assumes the worst of the, of the tax collector, and he judges him. He says, thank God I'm not like him. Or I'm not like these people. And, and, and before we judge the Pharisee, don't judge him yet. Because do we not do the same thing? Are there not certain people that we think we're better than them? Even when, when I would take groups down to the slums of any country, Latin America, Asia, Africa, I would give them a little pep talk about how you are not reaching down to a lesser person. You're reaching across to your equal. They don't have what you have. They don't have the opportunities you have. They don't have the wealth you have. But that doesn't make us any better than them. Actually, it makes us more blessed, maybe. But that doesn't make you any better. The truth is we are all the same before God. And we can't look down. We should not be looking down on anybody. The only person that had a right to look down on anybody was Jesus. And he didn't. He didn't. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched lepers. He loved everybody. And he showed it. And he didn't look down on anybody, even though he could have totally looked down on us. I mean, you might, you ever been around somebody that has a really irritating habit? Maybe they pick their teeth or they chew with their mouth. They talk with their mouth full or, or that's some kind of irritating habit that you're just like, ah, I can't stand being around that person. Don't look at me that way. You have people like that in your life. We all do. Imagine Jesus, who's a perfect being, and being with us with all our imperfections. You know, it's kind of like sitting in a room with a bunch of four-year-olds or five-year-olds. Where their sin is just blatantly out there. But that's what it's like for Jesus. And yet he did not condemn us. He came and loved us and helped us. And he's teaching this 
so that we won't do that. You know, the tax collector at a distance, he looks down. He doesn't even feel like he has the right to look up to God. He beats his chest, which again, it's just a sign of humility. It's a sign of brokenness. He asks God for mercy. He asks God to be merciful with him. Who do you ask for mercy from? When do you ask for mercy? When you've blown it, right? We've all blown it. All of us. There isn't one person that hasn't. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question is, do we deal with it? Do we face it? Do we admit it? Are we honest with ourselves about our sins? Are we honest with God? And are we honest with each other? You know, it's an interesting thing that God commands us to confess our sins one to another. Because you would think, well, isn't it enough just to confess to God? And yet he says, confess your sins one to another. He commands us to confess our sins to each other. Why? I mean, isn't God here? Isn't that enough? No, it's not. No, it's not. Because something happens when we admit our faults to each other. Something good happens. It helps us deal with whatever we've got in our heart. It gives other people the opportunity to help us. And it is key to healing, to having our own hearts healed, to having our own lives healed. Many of the sins that we commit, we commit them because something happened to us when we were younger and we're damaged or we're hurt or we're broken or maybe put another way, we're traumatized. And we have to be close enough with God and open and honest enough with God and ourselves so that we can be open and honest with others and get the help that we need. It's a lot easier to just live life like closed up in a box. And nobody touched me, nobody hurt me, but I'm also not honest about myself. Now, he looks down, he beats his chest, he asks for mercy. He calls himself a sinner. You know, again, not a big deal today. Big deal back then. That would be like saying that you were a sexual deviant, you know, that you were arrested for voyeurism or you were peddling tra- child pornography or something. That that would be that grave, that disgusting to everybody to be that. And he openly admits his fault. And look at Jesus' response. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is such a great scripture because he tells us how God sees this whole thing. He says, he went home justified before God. What is justified? means your sins are forgiven. means you are just if I'd never done it. That's what justified means. You're open, you're honest, you confess openly what you've done wrong or when you've blown it. And God forgives. God eagerly wants to forgive. John wrote in his first letter of John, he said, "Um, anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. It shows you how important truth is. Because the sinner, the, the, the tax collector, he didn't say, I'm going to stop being a tax collector yet. I mean, I would like to believe he did later down the road, but already he's justified just because he's being open and honest. Jesus says he's justified just if I'd never done it. 
for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You know, this is this is a that's a scary promise from God that if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. How do we exalt ourselves? Well, you know, we don't build statues to ourselves. We don't, you know, build monuments to ourselves and we don't go around telling the whole world, I am great. I'm awesome. Come worship me. We don't do that, obviously. But how do we exalt? Well, one of the ways is by comparing our strengths to others. It's easy. So one of the ways is by not admitting our our faults and weaknesses, not facing them. Then we think we're pretty awesome. We think we're pretty awesome. Do you ever get irritated by somebody in the church? Oh, I know we all have. But when we mess up and we blow it and we're honest about it, nobody else irritates us. In fact, we're just grateful that they want to be our friend. It's a way to take the air right out of the pride balloon. It's just to be honest and allow ourselves to be humbled by the truth. He said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, and this is the great part, is will be exalted. God will hold them up. God will hold up the person who openly admits their faults and weaknesses. The person who moves and lives from that position, from that place, that place of humility. Man, when you're when you're really humble and open and honest, and I know it can be really scary sometimes, but when we're that open and honest, we just love and appreciate everybody else so much more. And you know what the thing is? We don't get irritated by other people. We don't get short patience with others. We don't lose our temper like we would. But when we think we're all that, people irritate us. People bug us out. And we're constantly trying not to judge them, but it just keeps rolling. Judgment after judgment after judgment. It's because we're not in a good place. We have to get to a place where we're open and honest and dealing with who we are. In verse 3 of, of Philippians chapter 2, he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Paul is talking to the church. church was in trouble. They were having some pretty intense conflicts in Philippi. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. What's selfish ambition? Get me ahead. Make me look good. Or vain conceit. What is vain conceit? Talk about how I look. Do I look good? Do people respect me? Do I look like somebody everybody's going to appreciate and hold up? Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves. You know, this is one of those commands that you can't fake it till you make it. You can't pretend you appreciate everyone else. You either do or you don't. So what hope is there for us? Well, if we're open and we're honest about our own lives, we naturally will. God will be able to change our hearts and make us appreciative and loving towards everybody. And we'll be able to value others even above ourselves. Even above ourselves. One of the things that hit me so much when I, uh, I was with the group and my daughter was with me and we were visiting refugee camps in Turkey and just taking food, taking clothing, taking bedding. And I did my little pep talk with everybody about that, that we must respect and see these people that we're serving as our equals. It doesn't matter that they speak a different language or have a different culture or even a different religion that they are also created in God's image and God's children. And we're not to get prideful about this. 
that we have more than them, and we're blessed with the opportunity to serve and help them. That's very important that we see each other in this way. But here's the thing that was incredible, is everywhere we went, they would immediately put out food, put out tea, invite us in. We'd sit in their little tents, and that was, you know, put together by strings and rubber bands. I mean, just so fragile, bunch of things that they found to put together for shelter. And they would bring us out food. And I knew they had no food themselves. I knew that they were struggling to feed their children. But they were so generous. They were so generous. And it showed me. And it showed all of us in the group. In our debriefing time afterwards, we talked. They're incredibly generous. They are more generous than we are. And what does God value? Generosity and love expressed through service and giving. And that's totally what they were doing. So were we any better because we were giving items given us to give away than them who give the last and the little bit they had to us? No, we're no better. In fact, nobody is any better than anyone else. We have to understand that because that is the truth. He says, rather than humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. We get so caught up in our own interest. I want this, I want that, I want to accomplish this, I want to accomplish that. I'm this, I'm that. And not think about those around us and their interests. That was Jesus' mindset. Right after this is when he says, each of you should have the attitude of Christ Jesus. And I love it in Peter, both Peter and James. They say something similar in both, in both their letters. Peter writes, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward the one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love this because he's saying, look, look, just just make sure that you clothe yourself with humility. What does that mean? You know what? We all know what humility looks like. And the thing is, you, like I said earlier, you can't fake it. You can't pretend. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. Well, how do we get there? Well, through prayer, through honesty, through confession, through openness. Believe me, truth is very humbling. It always is. You know that feeling when you step on a scale and, and it tells you the way the scale tells you you've gained five pounds or something? And you're like, no! And you do it again. Why? Because you're hoping it was wrong. <laughs> or even much tougher when somebody points out something to us. And we don't want to believe that. But yet we know it's true. And he says, look, put your anxiety, cast your anxieties on God. He cares about you. Even with your faults. Even with your weaknesses. Even with your doubts. Even with your sin or your addiction or whatever it is. God still cares about you. And wants to help you with that. Don't begin all prideful acting like you don't have these sins. Or you don't have these things. And one of the clearest signs is when we get mad when somebody accuses something. We should not get angry. 
We should get humble and check and see if they're right. And James wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What would you like God to lift you up in? Relationships? Conflicts? Marriage? Children? Work? Difficulty with a co-worker? God would love to lift you up. God would love to bless you. But we just have to humble ourselves. We have to make sure we're being really humble. And let me tell you something. It's a beautiful thing when God blesses us. When we get a blessing, when God lifts you up, that is awesome. That is incredible. That is amazing. How many times have we been blessed by God in our lives? Have we seen people blessed by God because they humbled themselves? Because they gave their lives over to God and did what was right. It happens again and again and again and again. And he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We have, we, we have a direct influence on how we're humbled or exalted. You know, the old saying, don't pray to be humbled. Pray to be humble. You don't want God's hand to have to humble you. In fact, what we all want is God's hand to lift us up, to bless us. Just, we got to be humble. This is one of the best stories Jesus told. And he, of course, he repeats this theme again and again. I'm going to close out with this story. There once was a powerful matador in Spain, Don Francisco. And he was one of the great ones. And he had a lot of style and flair and, and charisma. And the crowds loved him. They would cheer him on. And they would chant things to him of what a great, great man he was. The problem was he began to believe it. You know, the Bible says a man is tested by the praise he receives. He began to believe the praise. And again, this isn't about self-effacing. So just being the truthful. What is the truth? He didn't listen to the truth. He let it go to his head. And in a very famous bullfight, where he turned around and took a bow to the crowd while they cheered. And while he was bowing, the bull got up and got him again. Don't worry. He survived. But be careful. Be careful that we don't get caught up in bowing and self-glorifying. This was the story Jesus told. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to have a great life. And he wants to bless us and hold us up. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, great story. Great lesson for all of us. You want, you want to be held up by God? You want to be blessed by God? It's real simple. We just humble ourselves before him, and God will lift us up. Great story by Jesus. God bless you. Buen camino. You've just listened to the Metro LA Podcast. For more information about our ministry, 
please visit MetroLARegion.com.